This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. It's nearly 2023, the year Australians will vote in a referendum on whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be recognised in this country's constitution. The vote will happen during the second half of the year. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, says it'll be an opportunity for Australians to be part of enriching our nation and making it even stronger. The opposition claims the Prime Minister's refusing to engage in a meaningful way on consultation and collaboration. Joining us now, live from Perth, is former Federal Liberal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, and who's a Noongar man. Good morning, Mr Wyatt. Thanks for getting up so early. Good morning, Sabra. No, it's a pleasure to be chatting to you on this issue. Are you worried that political tribalism is going to derail this referendum? No, I'm not. I, I, look, I believe that what we did in Australia for same-sex marriage can apply to give Aboriginal people a voice, particularly an opportunity to have a say in their lives and improve the outcomes that many governments have failed on. You you are part of a referendum working group on this and you do want this vote to succeed. What do you think the recipe of success will be? Look, I think the key element is the awareness and the education um, element are important in any constitution, but having the discussions... I'm fascinated the number of people who come up and just say, why doesn't government get on with it? We've heard what it's about. We're hearing the naysayers who have no pragmatic solutions to the challenges that Indigenous communities at the local level face. And they are angry with the Nats for having taken an early position without informing themselves. Well, Andrew G has now quit the Nationals and he did that a week ago over that party's position to oppose the referendum and he's going to sit on the crossbench. What do you think of his decision? Look, I've always admired Andrew G for many other things in my interactions with him over a long period as a Member of Parliament and as a representative of his seat. And he's always been pragmatic. So his decision uh, to support The Voice is a welcomed one because He gets it. He gets the fact that at the local, regional areas of Australia, we have levels of disparity that most Australians in capital cities have no idea of. And they have no idea that most decisions are made in Canberra or capital cities without involving communities in the solutions. And that's what I've always admired about him as an individual. Given the the divisions that we're seeing that are beginning to emerge within the Liberal Party, do you think that there should be a conscience vote on this? I would encourage my former colleague and leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, to give the coalition a conscience vote so that those who support the voice can do it. And I know those who support them, uh, but particularly those who oppose and then can take their opposing position. But I have every faith that Australians will say enough is enough, like they did with the same-sex marriage, and will say there is an opportunity to give Indigenous people a fair go and an opportunity to participate in decisions that impact on them at every level. You commissioned a report on The Voice to Parliament when you were a minister, and it gave quite a bit of detail on how The Voice would be set up. The opposition says it was appalled by the Prime Minister's speech at the Woodford Festival about this earlier this week, saying that he needs to get back behind his desk and provide more details. 
and that anything else, he was just simply busking for applause. Is that fair criticism? No, it's not, because there was the Lisa Dodson report that was tabled in the parliament, which gave a set of recommendations about the journey that needed to be taken, including more extensive consultation. The Uluru Voice voice in the Uluru Statement uh, was an, an important ingredient in, again, reflecting what Indigenous Australians want and then the Langton-Kelma um, report went into much more detail with comprehensive uh, structures around a local voice, regional voice, what it would be and what it wouldn't be, how it would involve community, not Aboriginal organisations, and the way in which the national voice would work. So the Prime Minister's comments are a reflection of what's in that report, and I would suggest to people that they take the opportunity of reading it because the local voice means that they will be able to negotiate and provide advice to the tiers of government at the local level and to other organisations about opportunity, about partnerships, about changing the lives of young Indigenous Australians. What do you say to everyday Australians and First Nations people about this referendum? It seems to me, reading Between's lines, you're saying pretty much ignore the politicians and do your own research. That's right, because when you do your own research, and I saw this with the same-sex marriage campaign, they did their own research, they lobbied every member of the Australian Parliament. I think there was an expectation that a plebiscite would fail, but it didn't because Australians said, no, we believe that people should be given an opportunity and to be part of uh, the practices within Australian society. And hence we saw... Uh, the Parliament make that momentous decision based on the work of informing people that Australians saying, no, we're fair-minded and we're going to support this. What happens if this vote fails? Noel Pearson says this generation has a responsibility not to kick the can down the road again. Well, we've kicked it down the road from the days of Tony Abbott Certainly, uh, Malcolm Turnbull has now uh, shifted his position and, and, and is supporting the voice. And I would hope that um, Scott Morrison, as the former Prime Minister, will get behind the voice and give it the impetus that it deserves, because leadership at the political level is important. But I think the minds of Australians are far greater than that of politicians and I would say to Australians, do your own research, talk to people, don't listen to the naysayers because I've not heard any naysayer come up with practical solutions that will resolve the issues that Aboriginal people face at the community level in respect to all of the social indicators that impact on their lives. And we've not seen improvements in a number of areas. Uh, Quality of life is one. child maternal maternal child rates have improved, but they've got to be better than what they are. Ken White, former Federal Minister, thank you very much for joining AM this morning. It's my pleasure. He was simply known as Pele and lauded as one of the greatest soccer players of all time. The Brazilian soccer icon has died after a battle with colon cancer. He was 82. 
A national hero in his home country, became renowned around the world for his speed and accuracy on the field and after competitive life, his ability to bring people together. Matt Bamford reports. When it comes to football, there were few bigger than Pelé. The Brazilian star transformed the sport with his smooth ball control and fearless attack. He helped create the beautiful game style celebrated around the world. The style that has scored him over a thousand goals in football. See it now, slowed down, off the chest, perfect control, lets it bounce, and then into the net it goes. As cool as anything you'd ever want to see. A prodigious talent from a humble background. The man born as Edson Arantes do Nascimento learned to play barefoot on the streets of his village. He came to international attention as a 17-year-old at the 1958 World Cup in Sweden, scoring six goals in the tournament and helping his country to the first of five World Cup trophies. Former Socceroos captain Paul Wade says he's arguably the greatest footballer of all time. I've often thought to myself, what is it that makes a goat? greatest of all time and I thought because we've all skillful we're all physically fit but imagination and flair you know that's something special I think that was the difference he captured everybody's imagination because he was one of the first to do it and he did it very very young when he was 17 playing for the best team in the world winning three world cups doing it all so young also with so much flair brilliant A dynamic attacking player, Pelé's ability to carve up the opposition revolutionised the game. You know, wherever you go in the world, the kids will come up and say, the 10, can you show us your number 10? They don't care about a number 6 or 7. So it was, uh, yeah, it's just loving the ball itself and being able to use your imagination to make it do things. It's just... Having the the confidence when a defender's coming towards you and he's behind you to know that he's there and flick the ball over his head, go around the other side and get it. Do you know what I mean? It's it's being aware of the space, not only in front of you, which we so concentrate on, but what happens behind. Sometimes he beats defenders without even touching the ball because he knows there's a gap behind him, so he lets it go through his legs and boom, he's gone. See you later. And that's what we talk about going home in the car. Dad, did you see that? And did you see this? How good was that? Let's practice, Dad, when we get at home. You know, that's the sort of special stuff that uh, he could do. Charismatic and popular, Pele's impact was felt as much off the field as on it. After retiring, he became an important ambassador for the sport. He was also passionate about promoting children's education, especially among Brazil's poor. In recent months, he spent time in hospital being treated for colon cancer. He passed away in Sao Paulo at the age of 82. Matt Bamford reporting there. Explosions have rocked a number of Ukraine cities and towns in one of the heaviest Russian assaults in the country since the war began. Officials have labelled the attack as senseless barbarism. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins reports. Yet again, Ukrainians are cleaning up after finding their homes reduced to rubble. Across the country, cities came under fire from Russian missiles, one of the heaviest bombardments seen yet. In Kharkiv, in the east, firefighters raced to put out a blaze at a power station. 
Local resident Mikita Postol says it feels like civilians are being targeted. This is terror. This is terror of Ukrainian people. This is genocide of Ukrainian people. They hit infrastructure, they hit residential buildings. Strikes were also reported in Lviv in the west and Zaporizhia and Odessa in the south. Several people, including a 14-year-old girl, were wounded in strikes on Kyiv. Anastasia was one of the many who sought shelter in the capital's underground metro. We are just tired of this and we don't have special concerns. Yes, we are trying to react and go to the shelter, but this interrupts our life. We don't know how long the war will last. It's hard to be afraid every day and put your life on hold. Kyiv's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, says the attack left thousands without power. The Russians want to bring depression, especially right now, Christmas time, New Year. The Russians want to bring us to, to black time without uh, lighting, to, without heating. Ukraine's military say they shot down 54 of the 69 missiles launched by Russia. Belarus claims the Ukrainian missile landed in their territory in an area close to the border. Meanwhile, in Moscow, President Vladimir Putin made a virtual address at a ceremony for Russia's new warships, vowing to boost the country's navy. Kremlin spokeswoman Maria Zakharova again knocked back Ukraine's peace pitch, labelling Kiev's 10-point plan as delirious. We consider such a delirious idea as another publicity stunt by Washington that has been trying recently to cast the Kyiv regime as a peacemaker. The war looks set to enter 2023 with no resolution in sight. Isabella Higgins reporting. The floodwater peak along the Murray River in South Australia has reached Renmark, but the danger hasn't passed. Crews are working tirelessly to reinforce levees against strong flows and the threat of wind damage. Bill Orman has more. Tons of rock are being poured out daily across the Riverland, with dump trucks delivering the load to crews waiting at the water's edge. Excavators are dropping boulders along the inside edge of the levee so it can withstand surging water and damaging winds. The water is extremely powerful, so we do see a fair bit of erosion from the waves. That's Dave DeGroncy, who's supervising some of the work taking place in the region. He and his crews have been working seven days a week for the past two and a half months to ensure the levees around towns like Renmark can withstand the rising river, which peaked this week at around 190 gigalitres a day. So until the water drops probably below 120, our levee bank systems here are going to be impacted by waves. Tony Sivier is the CEO of Renmark Paringa Council. We haven't seen any major defects. Probably the one thing that concerns us is the wind erosion. With the levees under peak load, that is of particular concern for us. Even the flows peaking, it's just a milestone in this journey. We've still got a long way to go. He says it will be at least a month before the flows coming down the Murray River recede to the point where they can breathe a sigh of relief. By mid-January, it will fall to about 150 gig and then it'll tail off and sometime the start of February we'll see the levels back at 100 gig. So for us we won't feel comfortable until the flows are below 120 gig. That's when all our levees will be disengaged. So we're still a month or a little bit more 
away from being really comfortable. Despite the flood's heavy impact on the region, Dave DeGroncy says there's an overwhelming feeling of camaraderie and community spirit between the earth movers, who are usually fierce competitors working for different companies. It's been unreal. This is probably, apart from the birth of my son, probably one of the coolest moments of my life. There was no tensions on the ground. It was just a whole bunch of people getting together saying this is what we have to achieve. The work hasn't gone unnoticed for residents living downriver in Cobdogla like Merrill Harding. The preparation has been fantastic. It's really, really good. So I feel very safe. I really do. We've got our sandbags ready, but I don't think we'll need them. So they've been doing a really wonderful job. For Dave DeGroncy, the work won't stop for some time, but that's okay. It's important for us to make sure that we're here maintaining every day, seven days a week, and we want the community to feel like they're safe here. That's Supervisor David DeGroncy ending that report from Bill Ormond and Sophie Landau. In less than two months, Sydney will host World Pride, the largest global LGBT event. Many hope it will revive Oxford Street's nightlife. For decades, it's been viewed as the spiritual home of the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. But the area still bears the economic scars of COVID shutdowns and lockout laws, as Gavin Coote reports. When the pandemic led to the permanent closure of businesses right throughout central Sydney... Adrian Tay took a leap of faith and opened a floristry. I think this will look pretty good. The former corporate consultant calls his shop the gayest floristry in Sydney. It's just off Oxford Street, which for decades has been the home of the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. But its long-standing reputation as a nightlife district has taken a big hit since lockout laws came in, aimed at reducing alcohol-fuelled violence. And then the COVID downturn. If you are part of a community and you think you can do something about it, put your money where your mouth is. Do something about it. Henceforth, I decided to set up my shop right here to revitalise this whole area, to make, make this fun again. That optimism is being felt right along Oxford Street as Sydney prepares to host World Pride 2023 in February. It'll be the first time the event, which celebrates pride and diversity, is held in the Southern Hemisphere. And with Oxford Street to become a focal point for the festivities, Adrian Tay sees it as the catalyst for breathing new life into the neighbourhood. So I just want to make sure that this is something they can remember for the rest of their life. And what we need to understand is right now, it's not just the LGBTI, it's also the allies all coming together. Not everyone's as upbeat though. Michael has lived, worked and partied around Oxford Street since the 1980s. To me, I think it's been something that was really quite special and spectacular and it's now turned into a graveyard. Coming up to World Pride, do you see it as a great chance to sort of bring new life back to this place? I can only live in hope, but I'm not sure about that, whether that's going to happen or not. It's pretty soon. There's a lot of um, vacant buildings everywhere. Others see World Pride as the beginning of a new era, rather than a fixed date to revive Oxford Street. Tom Joseph has been managing bars in the district for the past five years. In the same way that Sydney Olympics, the Sydney Olympics back in 2000 and, you know, other big events have always kind of forced us to go, all right, maybe we need to actually get this train light finished. We need to definitely look beyond that and what we're building now needs to go on. In a statement, Sydney's Lord Mayor Clover Moore says the City Council is committed to building on Oxford Street's reputation as a gay and lesbian and creative precinct. She says new planning rules will drive more cultural investment and there are plans for a new Pride Museum and cycleways. Gavin Coote reporting there and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.